Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in this series called Runner. <clears throat> it's a, it's a three-part. This is uh, number two. And it's, uh, the reason that we're talking about this story is because Jonah's story really is our story. Um, all of us at some point in our lives have run from God either blatantly or not so blatantly. We have resisted God's will and we have run from him it might have been some moral thing where you 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 were running or it was maybe in your finances or ethically somehow you you went on the run from God maybe it had to do with a relationship maybe it had to do with the fact that you were being called to forgive and you just couldn't you were having a hard time getting there and so you ran from God because of it it might be that you're here today and you might say about yourself or it could be said of you that you are resisting God entirely you may know you may be somebody that that kind of grew up in the church you know hearing all the stories about Jonah and hearing the story about Moses and the Ten Commandments and you saw that acted out by a little Sunday school teacher that had the flannel graph and you can remember all those stories Um, you know maybe that describes you and in your mind you know all the do's and don'ts And it's not that you disagree, really, with all that. It's just that you're not into that right now. You don't necessarily think that any of it's wrong or bad, but you're going to live your life the way you want to right now. Now, what's funny about that is we want everybody else to live according to the Bible but us, right? Like, you want everybody else to be honest, and you want everybody else to not steal from you, and you want to be treated fairly by everybody else, We want that from everybody else, but when it comes to us, sometimes we just say, right now, I'm going to be like Fleetwood Mac, and I'm just going to go my own way. I'm just going to do my own thing. And in a sense, we run from God. Or maybe this is you. You're not sure there is a God, but you do have a conscience. And you really don't worry about what the Bible says, but there's a tension in you Because you're not really even meeting your own standards for behavior. I I talk about this once in a while with people who maybe would call themselves an atheist or an agnostic. And I'll ask them the question, do you ever ask for forgiveness? Do you ever apologize to anybody? You know, maybe I'm talking to a husband. I'll say, have you ever apologized to your wife? And, and, you know, they say, well, yeah. And I'd say, well, then let's just understand something. You don't even live up to your own standard of behavior, much less God's standard of behavior for you. I mean, maybe you don't believe in God, but you're not even, the fact that you have to ask somebody for forgiveness or that you have to apologize to somebody is kind of testament to the fact that you don't even live up to your own standard. And so there's a tension there because, you know, you have some gauge of right from wrong. And it creates tension when, when you're not able to measure up. Some people, what they do is in an effort to mute their conscience and not hear it, they just decide that they're not going to believe certain things anymore because if you adjust your belief system, your conscience will eventually settle down and it doesn't bother you as much. And sometimes when things get really quiet and you're thinking about this kind of stuff, you come to a place where you just know that things aren't quite right. And if there is a God, and you're not really sure whether there is or there isn't, but if there is one, you know things with you and him aren't right. And you know there's an issue. You know you need to get a handle on it sooner rather than later because 
you know that, that you just cannot keep running. You can't keep up with this kind of chaos. Eventually, you're going to hit a wall, and eventually the chaos is going to be more than you can manage, and you know that, and so you're thinking to yourself, man, i got to get a handle on this. Some of you know that there's a God, but you're running, and you're putting off your surrender until some point in the future, right? Like there's you know, you got to go through a season before you and God can get right. God, right now, I'm not ready to follow you. I'm running, but when I get married, I'll settle down. Maybe I'll embrace more of my parents' um, you know, kind of method of doing things and some of their values, and you know, maybe church will be a part of that. Maybe you'll be a part of that. One day, I'll maybe do the God thing, but not right now. And so you're kind of putting it off into the future. Some of you it's not even that long. Your goal isn't even to last that long. Some of you, you know, we've got it's spring break for some of the college kids, and I have no doubt that there are some college kids that have basically said this to God. God, I'll be back after spring break, right? Like, I got some things to do on spring break. You don't want to be any part of any of that. I don't want you to be a part of any of that. So when I get back, you know, I'll have a come-to-Jesus meeting, and, and it'll all be great. God, I'm not an atheist. I believe in you. I've just got some things I want to do. And, and maybe once I get clear of all that, then maybe then I'll come back. But I don't want you around for this stuff I'm going to be doing. I, I'll stop running eventually. And a lot of us have just kind of scheduled our surrender to God around something that we want to do or something that we're going to do because we know in our hearts that things are just not right. Deep down, here's what you and I both know. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. That's where we left off last week. Jonah was in the belly of a fish, in the belly of what, what has been called growing up. I heard it as a whale. Now, let me just give you the disclaimer. Uh, I did this last week, and I think some people walked out of here and thought they weren't even sure I was saved. They, I think some people thought, I don't, I'm not even sure he believes in Jesus anymore. I do, and I believe the story of Jonah. But it's really important, especially in this culture, that as we gather together as a group of people, that we understand that not everybody in this room is on the same page faith-wise as we are. And it's really important for those of us of faith to carve out space for those who don't necessarily believe everything the way we believe it. Because here's one thing I can tell you that the church is really good at. The church has gotten really good at letting the rest of the world know what we're against. And if you don't believe like us, we basically have sent the message, then we're against you. And I don't want that to be the message at Cross Lane. If you've walked in here this morning and you don't believe like us, listen to me. It's okay. We don't hate you. We love you. There's room for you here. And just because you don't believe everything the way we believe, it doesn't mean that you have to hang your head in shame or that, that we don't want you to be a part of our fellowship. We absolutely want you to be a part of our fellowship. We don't expect you to believe everything exactly the way we believe it. Now, the story of Jonah, I believe this story. I believe it for a lot of reasons, and if you have any question about any of that, go back and listen to last week's sermon. It's online, and I'll explain to you why I think you should believe this story, and I also make room for people who don't believe it, because we've got to do that. It's okay. But even if you don't believe this story, just let me tell you this. There is wisdom coming from what's going to be said today, and you might not believe it's true. It doesn't even have to be true for you in order for you to get the wisdom out of it that is necessary for you to get, take great steps in life. 
Okay, so my prayer, my hope, my goal would be that at some point in your life you come to a place where you have enough faith to say, you know what, I think that happened. I think that there's a God who's big enough to be able to make a story like this happen. But if you're not there today, that's all right. Here's what I'm asking you. Just please listen to the message. Because there's wisdom coming from what's going to be said today that can help you, and it would be a shame for you to miss it because you had a hard time wrapping your head around the idea of a man in the belly of a fish. A real quick review, God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell the people that I'm going to judge them because their sin has reached me and I'm quite frankly fed up with it. I'm tired of, I'm tired of dealing with it, I'm tired of looking at it, I'm tired of smelling it, it stinks, I don't want it anymore. And Jonah says, God, I hear what you're saying, uh, no, I'm not doing that. Not going, to, not, not going to Nineveh. Now, what Jonah knew was that the Ninevites were really some pretty bad dudes. They had figured out a way to skin people alive and keep them alive. Now, anybody can do that. Anybody that even thinks about doing that, we're not going to be friends, me and them. Right? Like, I don't want to hang out with anybody. Like, I definitely don't want to go tell them that God's mad at them. But that's what God wanted Jonah to do. And Jonah said, I'm not going to do it. And we've done that. We've all done that. You know, we come to things, you know, we hear things like, read your Bible. No, I'm not reading my Bible. I don't want to read my Bible. You heard a sermon, the sermon said something, and you basically walked out and said, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. Your parents gave you advice. Mom and Dad, I love you. I know, you, I know you're, you're worried about me. I know you want the best for me. But no, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. And Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, where God wants him to go, he gets on a boat in Joppa, and he goes the complete other direction. It would have been 550 miles to Nineveh. I don't know how far it was to, to uh, Tarshish, but it was, it was as far as a, as a commercial boat could take you in that day. Another way of saying it is it's about as far as the known world for them, right? Like it was a long way away. And Jonah, in this, in this effort to basically pronounce to God as loudly as he could, no, he gets on a boat, for crying out loud, and he starts to travel away from Nineveh in the direction of Tarshish. And in so doing, Jonah discovers something that I think at some point in all of our lives we all discover, and that is that God is generous in his grace, but he is thorough in his discipline. And that is a problem for us because we want God to be all grace all the time. And I think God is all grace all the time. The problem is God is also all love all the time. And because God is all love, there are times that he is going to love us like a father. And I don't know how you have been a father if you're a dad, but what that means for me is that I love my kids enough to discipline them so that they are raised the right way. And so, because God loves us, he's going to discipline us. And I said this last week before we closed. God is generous in his discipline. He's he's thorough in his discipline not to pay us back. I think a lot of people have that in their head. You know, like, God, God wants to get me back for all the bad things I've done. No, God's not wanting to get you back. God wants to win you back. He wants to bring you back. And he wants you, he wants you to come back of your own volition. He wants you to come back of your own decision to say, God, I'm sorry, I, I ran and I shouldn't have. Because he loves us. Contrary to what you may think, God is not out to get you. God does not need to pay you back. God 
sent Jesus to die on a cross, and he took the punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to do that. But sometimes in an effort to win you back, God allows you and he allows me to come face to face with the consequences of our bad decisions. And he allows us to wallow in the chaos that many times we have created. You know, we're like, God, where did all this come from? And he would say, uh, you made that mess. That's from you. I, don't blame that on me. We pick it up in, John, in uh, Jonah chapter 2. And I said this last week, um, if you have a hard time finding Jonah, just go to Matthew and turn backwards in your Bible, uh, eight books, and you'll come to it. If you start in Genesis, you may never find it. So um, Jonah chapter 2, I said this last week, he's in the belly of a fish, and, and he's been there for some time. He's been there three days and three nights, and, and when he gets out, he writes about his experience inside that fish. And what we get is kind of a, a poem or a song or a prayer of some kind um, it's really Jonah's surrender song is one way that you could put it. Jonah, he's kind of waving the white flag at God as if to say, okay, you got me. I, I give up. I I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm done running. I'll stop. I'm done. So let's start at the end of chapter 1, then we'll flip over into chapter 2. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, to which I've got written down here, you better believe he did. Right? Because when you get swallowed by fish, that's what you start doing, is you start praying. And then in verse 2, at the beginning of his prayer, he says something that is now 2,750 plus years old, and it's something that human beings have been saying ever since. In every generation, in every language, this has been said. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Isn't it true for you? Probably for all of us. That we had a season where we didn't pray. We may have gone to church, but we didn't want to go to church. We may have gone through some motions. But inside, it was kind of dead. Inside, you were kind of a Christian atheist. Inside, it, you just, there was nothing really cultivating. You, you know, you're, here's, here's what's true of all of us in the room this morning. You're either growing or you're dying spiritually. One of those two things is happening for you. So I just throw that at you. Do with that what you want. If, if you're in the second group, red, you know, sirens should be going off for you right now. You're either growing or you're dying. And, and we've all gone through the stage where we felt like we were dying, and we, you know, we really weren't praying a whole lot. And when we finally did pray, when, when God finally got our attention, it was because we were in some stress. We were in distress in some way, and we said, you know what, I, I, need, I need you, God. It might have been when you were staring down the barrel of a pregnancy test. It might have been when you were in your car driving home to tell your parents something that you did not want to tell them. It might have been when you were in the back seat of a police car. If, if that is you, I would love to hear your story. <laughs> Maybe not. <clears throat> it might have been when you had your checkbook in one hand and you had your bank statement in the other and you had made some really bad financial decisions and you realized what it had meant for you financially, and you cried out in your distress. 
And in your distress, no matter what you had believed about God up until that point, regardless of how you had been able to justify your sin and just kind of go through the motions of your disobedience before, in your distress, you called out to the Lord. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Didn't matter how connected you were. Didn't matter how careful you were about taking all the right steps and not getting caught. You thought you were really slick. But all of a sudden, you were broken. And you were found out. And you were discovered, and there was no place else to run. And no place else to turn. And in your distress, in my distress, we cried out. We called out to the Lord. We've all done that. There's something about circumstantial brokenness. There is something about coming to the end of ourselves that overpowers our intellect, it overpowers our theology. It overpowers our resistance, and we finally, in our distress, we cry out to the Lord. Verse 2 says, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. And then in the middle of verse 2, he repeats it, from deep in the realm of the dead. He's in the stomach of a fish. Death was at his door. This is, you're in bad shape. You're in trouble when you're where Jonah was. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. God listens to the desperate cry for help from desperate people in desperate situations of their own creation. God listens to that. We make a mess. The desperation comes from our own bad choices. The chaos rises up out of bad decisions that we've made. A lack of wisdom leads to some really bad choices. And the next thing you know, we've got a mess on our hands. See, one of the reasons that we wait until it's almost too late is because we just wait until everything is just almost shattered. And we're almost ground into the ground before we turn to God because there's just something in us that says, man, God, the way I've acted, I mean, how in the world can I expect you to care anything about me? I, I, I've treated you like garbage. I've, I've ignored you. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. God, I, I've taken advantage of you. I've completely ignored you at times. Why in the world would I expect that you, I've completely disrespected you. And I've prayed prayers and God has answered them and then I've turned my back. There's just no way I can turn to God now. It's too embarrassing. It's too humiliating. And I pretty much told God to mind his own business and now what? Now that I need him, I'm just going to look at God and say, God, help. Help. Let me tell you something about your heavenly father. He is generous in his grace. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. God responds to the desperate prayers of desperate people who are in desperate circumstances of their own making. Man, 
That's a ton of grace. You know what that is? That is a constant, moment by moment, everyday invitation, no matter how far you've strayed or how far you've run, it is an invitation to come back and surrender your will to the will of God. That's what it is. It's an invitation. Verse 3, you, and he's talking about God. He's not talking about the sailors. Jonah's coming to some clarity here. He knows that this isn't about a storm. He knows this isn't about a boat or a fish or sailors. God was behind this misfortune. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. God, it's pretty clear now. I couldn't see it before, but I see it now. You were behind the chaos. Verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. And now we come to the interesting part of Jonah's prayer. Remember, Jonah is on a boat. It's about to sink. He looks at the sailors and he says, look, you've got to throw me over the edge. I'm the reason this is all going on. Okay, if you want this to stop, you, you need to throw me overboard because this is happening because of me. And they throw Jonah overboard into the water. Now, here's the question this morning. At what point in this story that Jonah experiences, at what point in the story do you suppose Jonah repents of his running from God? When did he break? Was it day two inside the fish? Was it late on the first night when he's inside the fish and he's like, God, I'm really sorry. Here's what I think. I think when the two sailors took hold of his hands and his feet and they're starting this a one, a two, right? I think about that point, Jonah says, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. And I think that before Jonah's body and, and clothes ever get wet, before he ever hits the water, Jonah has repented. Okay? I don't think it took long. He's a changed man. My dad used to spank us with a belt. Don't look at me like that, okay? Some of you had dads that spanked you with a belt, right? I'm not going to ask you to show your hands because it's not politically correct to say that anymore. But there's some of you in the room. Let me just say it. We wish your dad had spanked you with a belt, okay? <laughs> That's what we wish. We do, we do. My dad would use his belt. I, what I learned was to pick up my toys because my mother had no problem whatsoever spanking me with a Hot Wheel track, right? Like she would just grab the first thing she could find and more than once, Hot Wheel tracks was where it was at. And man, I'm telling you, that will make you come to Jesus in a hurry when you get spanked with a Hot Wheel track. Now, my dad spanked me with a belt. It wasn't child abuse. He was careful. He didn't go crazy. But my dad had no trouble helping me to associate bad behavior with pain. Right? Rebellion? Pain. You know, it's like Clubber Lang. You don't feel pain. You know, that was dad. He, he didn't have any trouble associating those two things. Write this down. Rebellion leads to pain. Rebellion leads to pain. 
And the sooner you learn that, the sooner your kids learn that, rebellion leads to pain, the better off it's going to be. So here's the story. Um, I was about six years old. My mom is probably pregnant with my, my youngest brother, Scott. I had a little sister 20 months younger than me named Amy. I had an older sister named Melissa, who's four years older than me. And, and we lived in this little house in Camelsburg, Kentucky. Little house. And it was, we were on the ground floor. Mom and dad's bedroom was at the far end, at the other end of the house. And there was this little bedroom that on one door went into the kitchen. That, that door was always open. And then there was a door that, there was a walkway that didn't have a door. It was just, it walked into the living room. So mom and dad would put us to bed. Mom would come in, you know, we put our jammies on, brush our teeth and all that, and there might be prayers, and then we, we go to bed. And we get the same lecture that you give your kids, and I gave mine, like, go to bed, no talking, lights out, it's time to bed, you got to get up early, all that stuff, right? All that stuff that we say that we know that we didn't listen to when we were little, but somehow when we get that age, we say that stuff too. And they don't listen to us either. There's three of us in this bed. I'm on the edge my sister Amy, who was probably the troublemaker, was in the middle. And then my sister Melissa was on the other side. And it, it just it was one of those things. Bill Cosby has a great routine back in the day where he talks about being in, in, in the bed with his brother Russell. And it's just a great story. But, but it's kind of like that. You know, it's one of those things where you just start testing things. And things get said that you probably said, like, stop touching me. Don't touch me. And then they touch you and you go crazy like, you, you know, like you've got shingles or something crazy like that. And then somebody decides that it would be really fun to, to get completely sideways in the bed and put their feet in somebody's back and push as hard as they can. Just craziness. And so we're back there, you know, laughing and joking and hitting each other and shoving and the bed's probably moving. And I'm la- I, I don't remember why, but for a moment I took a break and I lay, it was laying on my belly and I had my head turned and a movement out of the corner of my eye, I saw my dad on the floor coming around the corner with a belt in his hand like a, like a panther, like a, you know, like I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him. And I saw that, and it's, I was a changed man, right? I repent. Dad, please. Don't spank me. It was awful. It's that, you know, we still get the same feeling today when we're traveling 80 down the interstate and we see a police car and it's too late. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. And he saw me, and he knew he'd been made, so he stands up, and it's like he's got the belt in his hand, and you know, you know you're about to get a spanking. And, and I'm, I'm trying to talk him out of it. I'm sorry, Dad, please do me to me too, you know, Dad, please don't. And Dad listened. And then he spanked us, Right? Because that's what you do when there's rebellion. You associate rebellion with pain because these kids have got to learn that when I say something, they need to obey it because I love them. And one day I'm going to say something that's really important. And if they don't listen to it, it's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them. And sometimes when we discipline them, nobody's going to get hurt. It's like, you know, it's just a small thing. But sometimes they get into things and you have to teach them, no, 
That could hurt you. And I love you enough to associate your rebellion with pain so that you will never do that again. Because I love you. And I want you with me for a long time. And because I love you, I can't let you get away with that kind of stuff. And, and sometimes God's discipline is thorough. But he is generous in his grace. God disciplines us not to get us back. God disciplines us to bring us back, to win us back, because he loves us. He wants to ensure that the memory of the pain and the scars of the sin and the consequences of our running that we never run again. Because it is dangerous for us to run. And God loves us. And he does not want us in danger. God loves us. And he hates sin. And he doesn't hate sin for no reason. He hates sin because sin hurts us. Th those of you who are parents, think about, think about your children being hurt by someone. And think about the hate that goes through you thinking about somebody hurting your kids. That's how God looks at sin, and that's how God looks at you. So God allowed Jonah to slosh around inside of a fish for three long days and nights. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, Jonah writes. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Whatever was in that fish's guts, Jonah got an up-close-and-personal look at it. It had to have been nasty. Verse 6, the roots of the mountains, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. When the nation of Israel rebelled against God, he sent them into captivity for 70 years. I don't think it took 70 years for them to learn their lesson. I think that within seven years they probably learned their lesson. In fact, I think that within seven months they probably had learned their lesson. Probably seven days. God, 70 years? You're going to send us into captivity for 70 years? How about three years? God's like, nope, 70 years. Woo! That's thorough discipline. Moses and the children are in the desert, and there's some rebellion that happens, and God's like, okay, 40 years in the desert. Really, God? Yes. Look at the life of David. David experienced humiliation that seemed to go far beyond what you might have expected or thought necessary. And he got into David's family, and he got into David's kingdom, and he got into David's reputation, and David was basically humbled beyond all belief. But God never abandoned David. God said, you know what, this, this Messiah is going to come through your lineage. And God kept that promise, and he kept his hand on David. Go read the story of David and see all the stuff that happened to him. God is generous in his grace, but he is thorough in his discipline. Verse 6, the second part, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit, which you could say the pit that you put me in. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. And now he's going to get some clarity. And I don't want you to miss this part of the prayer. So if you've been on your phone or if you've been, you know, like counting, we don't have ceiling tiles, but if you're counting the lights or whatever, just kind of 
lock in for a minute, okay? Because he's, he's going he's gonna to get some clarity. This, is, this next thing that we read describes the dilemma that every person who's ever run from God or is running from God faces. He condenses it all down to one statement. This is the statement. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. When you run from God, it's because you're probably running to something. To someone, to some opportunity, to a lifestyle, to a pleasure, to entertainment, to friends. When you are running to something, and Jonah says, look, everybody runs from God, okay? When they finally get where it is that they're running to and they get that thing or that person or they get to that season in life and then they, they realize that what they've devoted their entire life to, given their time to, dedicated their youth to, and it's not what they thought it was going to be. And they begin to miss what they used to have and they realize that what they pursued is not worth what they gave up. Because what they gave up is the thing that everybody values. At the end of the day, what they really gave up was a great relationship with their Heavenly Father. Runners stop experiencing the love of God, not because God quit loving them, but because runners distance themselves from the love of God. It's not that God ever stops loving you. It's that you just run away from it. Think about this. In our despair, we do not cry out for the things that we pursued when we turned our back on God. We cry out for God because we know that in our life, the most valuable thing that we have is the fact that our Heavenly Father loves us. Every human being in their soul knows that that is the most valuable thing. Verse 9, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is us. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Do you know why the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time? Because God is thorough in his discipline but he is generous in his grace god's goal is not to pay you back god's goal is to win you back verse 2 go to the great city of nineveh and proclaim to it the message i give you verse 3 jonah obeyed the word of the lord and went to nineveh and i've got written there you better believe he did now right now I want to create some space for us in the room. I'm going to do something that we, don't, we do not do very often in here, okay? Uh, we don't do it very often because when we do it, I want it to be something very special. And today's the day. <clears throat> but I want to create some space for the runners in the room to publicly, visibly come and declare the fact I am not running anymore. I am not running anymore. Shelby is going to come out in a minute, and she's going to sing, and I'm going to invite you to get up from where you're sitting if you want to do this.
Get up. You don't have to stand up when they come out. You just stay sitting. But if you, if you, I want, if you need to do this, I want you to do this. I want you to get up out of your seat. I want you to walk down here. This is a public display of your saying, I'm not running. I've been running. Not running anymore. I want you to come down and just kneel. And she's going to sing a song. Just let the song play. Let the words of the song wash over you. Pray. Talk to God. I'm not going to come down here and interrupt any of this, okay? I'm not going to come pray over anybody. I'll be praying for you back here, but I'm not going to interrupt any of this. This is just you and God time. And as the band plays, you, you just you take whatever, how much time you need, and then when she's done, I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. But there are some people this morning that, that really need to come to the place where they say, you know what? I've been clinging to worthless idols for a long, long time, and I've been clinging to worthless idols at the expense of my conscience and at the expense of my relationship with God, and I'm tired of that. I'm tired of going to church and living like I'm a Christian atheist. I'm tired of waking up and being ashamed that I can't even talk to God because this stuff is, it comes up all the time. I'm tired of it. I'm not doing it anymore. You might be here today and you're thinking, man, I cannot believe, I wasn't even going to come to church today. And he preached this? I mean, because in your despair, you, you woke up this morning and you're like, I, 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 I'm going to go to church, but I don't even really want to go to church because it just feels, I feel empty and dead inside. And, and now you've come and I've preached a message like this and you're like, how did he know? How, how did he know? How did I know? Because this isn't just your story. This is my story. This is all of our story. You're not a freak. You're not weird. There's not something wrong with you. You've got the same thing in you that we've all got in us, and that is a propensity to rebel against a God that's crazy about us. What's wrong with us? But it's, we're, it's all of us. And so this morning, if that's you, if I just described you in your despair, when you hear the Lord's verse, would you respond by just coming forward and saying, God, i got to talk to you. I'm waving a white flag. You got me. I surrender. And this isn't like come to Jesus. If you want to do that, by all means, come let me know that. But this is for those of you who already belong to Jesus, who've run and you're tired, and you're weary, and you're humiliated, and you're broken. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the people in the room this morning who are about to do this. I pray that they wouldn't be worried about what anybody else thinks. I pray that they would be only worried about running in your direction. Because they've been on the run for so long. They're tired. They're probably ashamed of where they find themselves with you, and nobody knows. Just you and them. So God, in these very precious few moments that we're going to have in this room as this music plays, I pray that you would do a work inside all of us, not just the ones who come down here and pray, but all of us. That we would understand that you're Discipline is thorough, but your grace 
is generous. We pray this, Father, in your name. Amen.